This week, the most haunted boat, the Queen Mary, leading to a ghostly experience for an actor. Then, back to the spooky custom house in Hamilton and how some bricks freaked me out. And finally, I'm going to answer some ghost questions. Do you guys watch Yellowstone? I know that's a uh, funny thing to ask, but it's a good show. I know it's not ghost related. I assume you assume that I just sit around watching horror movies all day, but I don't. I, I love the show Yellowstone. So when I heard that, is it Paramount? Yeah, Paramount, it was going to release the family story. So there's different shows. You have Yellowstone, which is the current show. And then you have the family stories, which is, uh, I believe, 1889. And the other show is called 1923. And I watched them all. So love the show. That was the point I'm trying to get across here. But the reason I bring it up is because in the 1923 show, the first season, last episode, don't worry, no spoilers, The one of the main actors in the show, he ends up on an old-fashioned cruise liner. So like the cruise ships from back in those days. And I, I was looking at it and I'm thinking, oh, wow. Like they really picked an amazing location to do the filming because, I mean, this this it, it's like perfect. And I didn't realize that they were actually filming on the Queen Mary. So the Queen Mary, if you don't know, I consider it the most haunted, haunted boat in the world because there's... You're not going to get a lot of opportunities for haunted boats. And this one definitely uh, takes it because of the fact, too, that they've they've docked it in California. And you can go and stay overnight. It's a hotel. So having this opportunity of thousands of people staying overnight on this beautiful old cruise liner, you have an opportunity for spirits. And I do talk about hotels being very haunted places. And one of the main reasons is just the amount of people who have stayed overnight in those rooms. So the energy just builds up over the years, the experiences that happen in the rooms. And I'll talk a little bit about the Queen Mary's most haunted rooms. And then I'm also going to get to a personal experience. Not me, but the main actor from 1923. Oh, it rhymed. So he, he's doing the filming on a very haunted boat, the most haunted boat, I must correct myself. And of course, I mean, I know it's good for marketing, and you might be thinking, oh, okay, that actor, he just said this because it's good for marketing, but I, I'd, I'd beg to differ. I'm going to say that just the fact that this show is connected to Yellowstone, which is one of the most popular shows in the world right now, they don't need the extra promotion. So I doubt very much somebody went to him and said, oh, just fake having a ghost experience. I don't think that's the case. I could be gullible. You could be calling me naive right now, and I will take that. I will take that one for the team. But when it comes down to it, I don't think that it's being faked because of the fact that as the show is going to be popular anyway. And the second thing is... He is on the most haunted boat in the world. So if something's going to happen, it's going to happen. Now, I haven't pre-read any of this information, so I'm going to be experiencing it for the first time just like you guys. But I wanted to teach myself and at the same time provide information for you about the boat itself. Because I'm familiar with the Queen Mary. I've heard about it for many, many years. If California wasn't so far away, I probably would have stayed overnight there myself. Maybe one day I will. Most likely. I, I, I probably will. So I've heard of it, but I've never really dove deep. I touched on it a couple weeks ago. I did the episode where I, <laughs> I, I didn't mean to go after Sam and Colby, but it kind of ended up being that because, I don't know, I'm just, I'm, I'm very jaded. I'm a very jaded person. I guess that's what it comes down to. But they had an uh, experience, uh, the knocking experience on the Queen Mary. So 
I heard of that, but I didn't really know any specific history on the reasons for this energy and for the ghosts themselves. So let's break that down right now. Just me and you, me and my only friends in this world, we're going to break this down together. So I found this article on travel and leisure, and it's in regards to the Queen Mary's, and they actually listed in a very beautifully organized way for me on this show, the most haunted rooms on the ship. So I'm going to go through these very quickly for you. The very first one on the list is Stateroom B as in Bravo 340. So they say that the stateroom was a problem long before the Queen Mary opened as a hotel. In 1948, a third-class passenger, a British man named Walter Adamson, he passed away in the room. The details of his death are unknown. And then in the same room in 1966, a woman staying there reported that she woke up when the bed covers were being pulled off her and she saw a man standing at the foot of her bed. She screamed and rang for the steward, but the man apparently vanished into thin air. So I guess whoever this uh, Walter fella is, he's a, a tad bit of a perv. I'm just I'm just I'm going out on a limb here. Now, years later, guests also have reported hearing someone knocking on the door in the middle of the night. They also see the bathroom lights will turn on by themselves. Even the uh, maids of the hotel, they started complaining that they would find the bathroom water running. If you guys remember, I, that, that's probably the room then. Because I was talking about Sam and Colby, their knocking experience. It started in, in their words, the tap in the bathroom turned on by itself. So this could very well be the room. I should go back and check. And you're probably saying as a responsible host of a podcast, you should go back and check. But I, I have I have faith in you guys. That's the my my that's that's my excuse for laziness. I have faith in you to, to figure this one out. My my amateur sleuth. So the water was running, even though no one had stayed in there for days. And uh, another report that another woman had the bed covers pulled off. So two women had the bed covers pulled off. Mr. Adamson, I'm a little disappointed in you, but that's okay. A lot of, a lot of uh, kind of perverted ghosts that I talk about in stories, and uh, the Angel Inn comes to mind in Niagara-on-the-Lake. So the room was closed to guests for many years, but has since reopened. So you can, you can stay overnight. Again, that's stateroom B340. We also have the Mortania room, and it says in 1989, two women were sent to clean this lounge for a VIP reception. So this is, I guess, like a, an event room. When they entered it, they found a passenger sitting on a chair in the middle of the dance floor, and he didn't say anything. When a third woman came in to help with the cleaning, she remarked that the passenger was staring, and she asked him to move. That's creepy. That's just kind of sitting there as people are walking in. As the employees got upset, they were going to call security, and the passenger faded away in front of them. And the, all three women reported the exact same thing, seeing the exact same thing at the same time. We also have the Mayfair room, and the uh, room was once the ship's beauty salon. It's now used as offices for the hotel. In 2001, a member of the accounting staff he came in early, early to work. It was like 5.30 a.m. and felt like something was off. Uh, she went to her office task before sitting at her desk and it felt cold around her. Later, she felt someone brush up against the back of her chair, but no one was there. Just minutes after that, the woman saw a transparent figure in white uh, walking along the room and she passed through the door. Needless to say, this employee grabbed her keys and left. Now, it doesn't say if she quit. I know these stories always end with the employee quitting. I'm assuming that she didn't, but I doubt she ever came in early again. I'm, I'm willing to make that guess. That is a cool one. This is the first class swimming pool. So you had to be the first class passenger to get into this swimming pool. But it's now abandoned. The pool on, the, on board it was once the top of luxury. It had an illuminated fountain. It had a mother-of-pearl ceiling. Elaborate mosaic tiles. 
beautiful. It's no longer in use because of the California code issues, so it's probably not safe. It wasn't safe back then either, so I wouldn't say the height of luxury, maybe just below that. So it's a hotbed of paranormal activity. I could see that personally if there's people were gathered around and I'm sure there's a lot of gossip, you know, uh, first-class passengers like the gossip. I, I do know that. So people have reported seeing a number of ghosts here, including a young woman in a tennis skirt walking downstairs and disappearing behind a pillar, a woman in an old wedding gown next to the pool with a little boy in a suit. So a woman in a wedding gown standing beside a little boy in a suit and a cloud of steam appearing out of nowhere along with a little girl in a blue and white dress who disappears in an instant. Now, personally, this is like a perfect example of how we don't really know the stories of these spirits, but it's amazing to think that when you go into this this pool, is like you're surrounded by history. And that was the point I was trying to make, I believe it was last week, when I disagreed with Sad Guru in the sense that I think you want to be connected to that history because you can hear the stories and we have a beautiful habit of telling stories as human beings but to actually have the history still around you in the form of energy that remains that's I think the beauty of ghosts and that's the reason why I'm such a an avid believer and when I when I read the stories I just enjoy them so much when I hear these I don't know who these the woman in the tennis skirt, the the wedding gown, the little boy, the little girl. I don't know who they are, but I just think it's really cool that they existed in a time when this boat used to sail the open seas. People went on it, you know, to be tourists and that they were part of that. And they're, they're most likely long dead, but that in a piece of them still remains. I like to think that's going to happen to me. Ah, as a side note, have you guys ever thought about that? You ever sat back and thought, hey, the house that I'm currently living in, if, if I were to die tomorrow, okay, you probably haven't thought that, but if you were to die tomorrow, sorry to be dark, then would you haunt your house? Have you talked to your spouse about that, your girlfriend, boyfriend, you know, just, just mentioned to them, it's like, oh, it, it, would you be okay if I haunted you? Are you asking if, I, if I've talked to my wife? Yes, I have. I have talked to my wife about that. I'm very, I'm very detailed when it comes to these things, especially when it comes to ghosts. I said, yeah, if I, if I die tomorrow, I said, I'm going to, I'm going to haunt her so very much. And she's like, don't do that. Don't, I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it because I need to prove ghosts are real. And if I have to become the ghost to prove it's real, then that's exactly what I'm going to do. Stop shaking your head, dear listener. Uh, moving right along the boiler room number four several people have reported seeing a little girl in this area sometimes they see her sucking her thumb sometimes she's holding clutching onto a doll and for some reason it's really freaked the author of this article out they sound like they're just going to choose to stay away from that room i don't know it sounds like a nice ghost to me and the last one that they mentioned is something called hatch door number 13 the hatch door is known as the as Shaft Alley, and it was the site of a gruesome accident that saw a crewman crushed to death. Now, one night in 1966, a watertight door, the engine and boiler rooms, were ordered to be closed. About five minutes later, an 18-year-old crew member from Yorkshire was found crushed in the door of hatch number 13, trapped with his arms pinned to his sides. Well, the man was freed and carried to the hospital ward, unfortunately, it was too late. He showed signs of crushing injury on his arms, chest, and pelvis, and was bleeding from his nose. He was injected with morphine, but died shortly after. That is, that is a decent amount of detail. Uh, so now, because of such a gruesome death that started with that hatch, it is said that his ghost is regularly seen in the area. And people reported the sound of someone running behind them and whistling. Others have uh, made contact with the crewmen, noticing spots of grease that look like fingerprints on their faces. 
Some have seen a figure of a bearded man in blue coveralls that looks like the man who died out of the corner of their eyes. And several others have said they saw an engineer wandering the hallways asking if guests had seen his wrench. But when they went back to find him, he had disappeared. Here's a question for my new questions segment that's coming up later in the show. Shameless plug. Is why does tragedy create such vivid ghosts? Because I I talked about the spirits from the swimming pool and it was more like you just saw them. They just appeared and they were just there. There was no stories behind it. But then you have this this horrific tragedy of the 18-year-old crew member who died in a terrible way in the hatch. And his spirit is, is much more active. More people seem to have, you know, interactions with him and even hearing his voice. Now, I wonder, is, is it because of the tragedy being more or is it because we know about this tragedy and our fear of it happening to us puts more of a focus on it? So people go to that area more, they think about that spirit more, they put more focus on it, and the more you put focus on it, the more energy you provide it, and then it maybe makes the ghost more active. I don't know. It's an interesting thought. I'd love to hear your comments on this. Uh, Just so you know, I added a new link as well to the description called Contact Form. I have a contact form on the website, and if you have any comments you'd like to add, you can, of course, go to the Facebook page. Or Instagram, Ghost Guy Daniel, or you can use the contact form if you just want to talk to me directly. So those are the most haunted spots on the ship. So let's talk about the actors. So 1923 again, show spinoff from Yellowstone. It's showing the descendants, descendants, the ancestors. Yeah, ancestors of the Dutton family featured in the show Yellowstone. So 1889 is from 1889, 1923, of course, is from 1923. So one of the ancestors is played by an actor named Brandon Skelnar, Sklar. And in the finale, they filmed on an old-fashioned cruise liner, which, of course, as I mentioned, I later found out was the Queen Mary. So I'll have the link to this article in the description but highly recommend it's a fun read especially if you're a fan of the show and if you haven't watched the show definitely watch the show it is a great show harrison ford and helen mirren are in it as a married couple i mean that alone is worth the price of admission which you know it's really not an expensive admission yeah just seeing them as a married couple and how they interact with each other is so worth it they're awesome so anyway they interviewed him they said uh about you know filming on the boat about what season two is going to bring and then they asked him a question so it's question and answer says the queen mary is supposed to be haunted brandon did you have any ghostly interactions and he responds he said someone took a photo which i have on my phone of the ballroom where we shot a scene and i'm not kidding probably the most legitimate photo of something I've seen in my life. He's talking about like ghost photos. There was a person sitting at the piano playing the piano like a white figure. If I ever see you in person, I'll show you this photo. It will blow your mind. Whether you're a skeptic or not, it's pretty wild. That's interesting. You got you got to see this actor. I mean, he's a good actor. But I know a lot of actors and actresses, they bring their own personality into their roles. You know, there's some actors who can just become other people, like Daniel Day-Lewis, for example. But most of them, they they just, they are who they are. So like um, Jennifer Aniston is always Jennifer Aniston in every role. She doesn't usually skew from that. Because the more natural you are in that role, the more, you know, realistic it looks. So when you see this guy, You see how serious a person he is. That's his role. He's a very serious and stoic person. I do believe he's bringing a lot of his own personality into it because when I hear him talking in this article, that's the feeling I get from him. So when he says this and he's like, you know, amazed by it and he says, I'll show you this photo, 
So he has to, you know, follow up and show the photo and telling someone it will blow their mind. That's that's even better. And he even mentions the word skeptic, which I believe, you know, he's probably more on that side of the spectrum than on the side of being a believer. So it, it, it rings true to me, to whatever he saw in the photo of a white figure sitting at the piano. And I wonder if the ballroom is the, um, which room was it? The Mayfair room? No, no, it was, uh, yeah, I got, I got to find this out. Which room they were talking about that had like the, the, the event room, the Mauritania room. Yeah. So the Mauritania room was an, uh, an event room. I wonder if it's the same one because it was the three women. You remember the three women commented on seeing what they thought was a quote unquote passenger sitting in a chair and then to see someone sitting in a chair by the piano. He might have thought it was a, a pianist, but it probably wasn't. It, you know, this could be the same this could be the same ghost. So that's why I, I like when I read two separate articles here, and it's the same thing when I when I know ghost stories and then people tell me their own experiences, I see that that validation. There's like that validation and connection that that comes together and it always amazes me. So anyway, I'll, I'll throw the links to both these articles in the description of this podcast if you guys want to read them through, which I highly recommend. But uh, yeah, amazing experience from a stoic fella that I truly believe, and we all learned together about the Queen Mary. Now, I know for a fact, dear listener, if you've been listening to my show for a long time, first off, thank you. You're my favorite listener, hands down. But the second thing is, you've probably heard me talk about the Custom House here in Hamilton. Now, I personally was a huge fan of this space, and it was devastating to me that they made this decision to not have the ghost walks anymore. And I, I understand the reason why they did it, although I don't, I, fully, I think it's a bit of an overreaction, but that's my own personal opinion. Because I loved going. I mean, it was amazing the experiences we had in this place. When it comes to ghosts, top notch. So I've talked a lot about it. I've given my own some of my personal experiences. And I've also talked about this area and the experience that happened to uh, Lauren and Marion, uh, two managers at the Ghost Walks and the hunts that we used to hold there. But this one's different. I, I swear to you, I haven't talked about this one before. This is not a repeat at all this is this is an experience that happened to me when i first went into the building so we're going back all the way to like 1999 and the year 2000 the first time that i ever got to go into that building when i was originally planning that custom house tour and we were you know to to tour the place to see how possible it would be and you know spoiler alert it was definitely possible so we ended up opening this this wonderful tour of the building, started out in the main gallery, you know, people could sit there for a bit, we could do a little bit of an introduction, and then groups would go off into the building. We'd have the multiple ghost guys, you know, ghost guy George, ghost guy James, you know, the, the OG GGs from back in the day who, you know, did a wonderful job and like were just made to do these tours. And I look, I look so fondly back on those times and I, I just remember you know I didn't know what I was doing I mean like anything when you're running a business you know at the beginning it's the most scary times like like terribly scary times because you really don't know what's going to happen next you don't know if people are going to come out you don't even know how to make you know the plans for you know if things go wrong you know, how, how do I how do I market this? How do I advertise this? You know, and then the, the sense as well of running the tour and telling the stories and getting the history right. How do you want to convey these stories to the people? How are the people going to react back towards to you? Oh, my goodness. You know, I think I look back and I'd be I, you think I'd be like frightened, like a deer in headlight frightened, but I'm not. I actually look back and I kind of miss those times. I do kind of miss, you know, the times before I felt more confident in what I was doing with this business, how I wanted it to run and everything like that. And then, of course, becoming a ghost guide myself, you know, back in, I must have been 2003 or so. 
you know these these were the these were the times that they were exciting you have you have this excitement that goes around it because you're entering into the unknown you know very much like ghosts you know being scared of ghosts you're entering into the unknown it's the same thing with running a business so anyway the custom house ghost walk wasn't the first tour that i did the downtown hamilton one was but custom house came soon after it wasn't really long after that uh, those tours started however i was familiar with the building from events we had done in there before so we spent a lot of time in that place over the years and i think the energy of the place must have gotten comfortable with us because of the fact that it was so easy to have things happen when we were inside that building so that that was the ghost walks in the building in a nutshell they were all inside i think at one time we tried going into the backyard but it was just better to stay inside and they were wonderful uh, great stories which i've been sharing in the podcast throughout throughout the the couple years that i've been running this now and i really hope one day it comes back I'll just, uh, I'm going to leave it up to karma at this point because they obviously don't seem interested at all. I I won't say any specifics around that, but I just say I I know for a fact they're not interested (laughs) and we'll just leave it at that. So the the house, the, the building itself was amazing. A lot of creepy spots, but of course in any haunted place, the most creepy are going to be the basement and the attic. And we've had experiences in both. But I'm going to go back up to the attic for this one. And again, this is a brand new story I haven't talked about on the podcast yet. And just being in that attic, you you feel there's something there with you. I, I really don't know how to describe it. If you know, I guess it's the same feeling of somebody staring at you. And you, you know, so you look up and it's like, what are you staring at? It's that same type of feeling. So when I had to set up those tours... There was many times, if not, you know, 95% of the time that I was the one by myself inside that building. So it would be coming into evening time. I'd have to go up into that attic by myself to get chairs to bring down through the, through the elevator. And when I get up to the attic, thank goodness the chairs were close to the elevator. So that was easy. I didn't actually have to walk into the darkness of the attic to get them. I didn't have to go near the caretaker's apartment, which I'll talk about in a sec. But you felt it. You felt it because when you came out of that elevator, it was lit up around you. But they didn't have any lights on in the attic itself because why would you waste the energy if you didn't have to? So you come on out. It's lit up around you. The chairs are in front of you. The dark lady's mantelpiece, which I'm sure I'll talk about again in the future, is over in front of you to the left. So you can see that in the light too. So, of course, I look in the mirror. I make sure there's no you know, spooky woman staring back at me. And then beyond that, it's just darkness, like a wall of darkness. And I always felt like I was being watched. Like when I when I came out from the left-hand side, it always felt there was eyes on me from that darkness. And I had known that the area was haunted by the caretaker. We believe that's the same energy that freaked Lauren and Marion out in that experience with the knocking on the wall that that scared them. So much they ran downstairs and out the front door. Well, Marion did. Uh, Lauren, I think, went a little bit slower because she was just amazed to have the experience. So it's just a, it's just a feeling up there that I knew about over the years. But I didn't have that feeling at the beginning. So the initial tour that we took of the building was back in like the year 2000, around there, give or take. And walking through the building, it was like, still kind of bright out you know looking around at different things i hadn't had been in the attic that much at this point so then the worker his name is ian uh, and he took us up to the attic he was showing us around he actually took us into the caretaker's apartment so i don't know if you know so in the time before security alarms most of these business and government buildings they needed a caretaker to stay overnight So you actually had a guy, sometimes you had a family, they had a small apartment or space inside the building that they lived in, and then they could watch over it, they did the maintenance, they fixed up whatever needed to be fixed up. So for the custom house building, which I guess it was a museum for many years, and before that, Karate Dojo, 
Um, I don't know, maybe the caretaker comes from the time in the Naples macaroni factory, which was in there. That would have been like the 60s, 70s time frame. And the apartment was put in for whoever stayed overnight to watch over the building. So whoever the caretaker is, which time, we're not 100% sure. I'm thinking when it was Naples Macaroni, though. Yeah, the, I'm pretty sure the third floor was there at that point because there was a fire at one. Like, it used to be a two-floor building. So the caretaker would have had to been in there after the fire. So that space would have been created for this. So I'm thinking Naples Macaroni, but I could be wrong. So the caretaker apartment, Ian takes us inside and shows us around. Now, here's the thing. I noticed these things, but I didn't say anything about it. If something drew my attention, I don't know what it was. I mean, it's just a random thing to think about or to see. Maybe I was bored. I'm not sure. But I look over towards the window and I can see some bricks. There had to have been uh, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. So there had to have been about ten bricks. And they were just kind of on the floor in front of this small half window that was inside the caretaker's old apartment. So I was looking at the bricks and something about them felt felt weird to me. I was staring at them. I was thinking like, you know, why are there, why are there bricks there? Like just weird random thoughts that were coming into my mind. And then uh, Ian said something, brought my attention back. I didn't say anything about the bricks, and I didn't think about them again after that point. Now, it turns out we were there kind of late, and it was getting close to closing time. Again, it was light out. I think it was only like 5 p.m. that they closed at. So Ian's like, I got to get going. I got to so like, no problem. Is it okay if we come back the next morning? We just have a few more things to, to, to mark out, to kind of set up, to make sure that this is going to be right. And Ian was like, yeah, no problems. Come in the morning. So we leave. He locks up. We go home. Now, the next day, we came back in the morning very early. And I remember it was Ian again we met. He was kind of like our contact at the time. He came. He unlocked the building. So we were the very first ones there since it was closed the night before. And we continued the tour. So we tell tell him uh, we want to start from the attic where we left off. And then we can just work our way down. I'm not sure if we had gone to the basement. No, I'm pretty sure we left to the basement to the end because we knew that's where a lot of the stories were coming from. So we go up uh, the stairs. I can still remember the, the days. Very unhealthy fellow back in those days. And stairs were a big challenge for me. So I can still remember those. And we went up the stairs. We went into the attic. We went into the caretaker's apartment. And I saw it immediately now thinking back to it i can't really tell you how i felt in the moment you know i think back on it today and i i I remember just not really thinking of anything it was like my brain went silent for that moment because it didn't really understand what it was looking at so the bricks the 10 bricks that i had for some reason noticed the night before had changed it was almost like somebody had picked them up 10 bricks and stacked them into a perfect pyramid it was really amazing so like you had the uh just just one one brick deep and then you had the the base and then it just stacked up smaller and smaller until the very top where there was one brick on top it was stacked up in front of the window in a perfect pyramid And I remember staring at it for a while. I think maybe Ian uh, said something. He was like, you know, is everything okay? And I said, those bricks. And then I told him what had happened. And it it didn't really freak Ian out. You got to understand, Ian was very skeptical of the ghost. He actually made fun of it a lot. Some of his jokes were really funny, by the way. And (laughs) I can appreciate that. So he he didn't really, like, freak out. Over the thought that something had stacked those pure, that stacked those bricks in the middle of the night, I was freaked out because that was the time before I was kind of like desensitized on all this stuff, and I was a complete believer, and still am in in spirits and ghosts. So I was freaked out just at the thought that something was able to stack these bricks, like something in this building was powerful enough to lift those bricks and stack them. 
and Ian, I, I knew for a fact, because if he ever played a practical joke, he'd just come out and say it. And remember, we, we saw him leave the night before, and he was just kind of like, yeah, yeah, whatever, whatever. So it's just amazing that, that, that somehow they stacked. And it got to me to thinking for this show about the idea of ghosts being able to move objects. Like, how does this work? And I know there's been lots of stories told over the years. I've, I've heard many of them myself, the idea that people have actually seen objects moving in front of them, including, you know, well-respected people like the ghost author uh, Terry Boyle. He explained in one of his books that he saw an ashtray actually float past his face. And it got me thinking, like, how is it possible for spiritual energy to move material objects especially things as heavy as bricks. And I've, I've gone down this rabbit hole, and it just, it, it just fascinates me to think. If you guys look up this uh, idea that there was these ancient civilizations that existed before ours, you know, it's the common belief now that our civilization started with the Sumerians and then led to the Egyptians and so on and so forth, but now they're starting to have this evidence that there was something before it, that the great flood that's mentioned in the Bible with the story of Noah, that it actually existed. Not to say that, you know, Noah or any of that existed, but I'm saying that the flood itself came in and wiped out whatever civilization was existing back then. So they're finding these megalithic sites that existed that they think is like, you know, 11, 12, 13,000 years old. And the most amazing part of it is that they had this technology, however they did it, to be able to lift and move these massive stones. And I'm not talking like bricks. I'm talking about like, you know, nine ton stones bigger than a person. And they lifted them and they stacked them on top of each other. And it's the same thing. There's mysteries with the pyramid. How did they build the pyramid, which they also believe might date back even before the Egyptians like the Egyptians we know today, that it dated back to a more ancient civilization. So how, how does this connect with spiritual energy? Well, one of the thoughts that science has put forward, just as a hypothesis, they've said that it was possible that the ancients used sound vibration. So that they, 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 they understood the principles of energy better than we do today. And they somehow use sound vibration to not only move those stones from one place to another, but also to lift them and stack them one on top of the next. So then that gets me to thinking the idea that, you know, sound vibration is basically just vibrating energy and that energy on energy, you know, spirits also being vibrating energy, vibrating on different frequencies, you know, maybe that has something to do with it. But I don't know. I'm kind of still on the fence. But either way, Custom House, one of the most haunted places around, hands down, one of the most haunted places that I've ever had the pleasure of doing tours and events at. And hopefully, you know, if the gods see fit, we'll end up back there again. So I'm trying this out. This is a brand new segment that I'm going to throw in here to see how my... Uh, my my motivation, my longevity is gonna <laughs> gonna come into play here. I, I wanna extend this this podcast. I want it to be closer to an hour long. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I would love to hear your thoughts on it. Again, the comment form link is now in the description below. But I'm gonna add this in, you know, we'll see how long it lasts, if you guys enjoy it, whatever. But what I've done is I've gone to a couple of websites. And I've pulled some questions that people are asking in relation to the subject of ghosts. So they're going to ask questions. These ones are kind of straightforward. In the future, maybe I can get something that's a little more complicated. And we'll break it down together. I don't have any notes here for these ones. I only have the questions. Let's just see where it takes us. Hey, it could be boring as hell. You could, you could be sitting there going, this sucks. I hate it. Please judge me on the first two segments if that's the case. And you can just, you know, cut cut me off now. Just shut it off. Go ahead. It won't bother me. I, I'm, I'm going to be upset. I'm going to be angry. But I'll, I'll get over it. Maybe. We'll see. 
I don't know. I, I really like you guys, so I'll get over it. Everything's going to be okay. Don't worry. <laughs> anyway, like I said, I have three questions here for you today. And the first one that they asked, can ghosts see me? Now, I've given this one a lot of thought. You'd be surprised how much thought that I've given this one over the years. The idea that if uh, spirits can see you, I'm going to say for the most part, my belief is no. That the spirits you don't directly communicate with have no idea that you're there. Because I also believe that the spirits that you don't directly communicate with aren't actually there themselves. So this is the idea of uh, residual energy versus conscious energy. So the conscious one is the one you communicate with. The residual ones, the ones that are energy that is just left over. So I think that the majority of ghost experiences that I have read and that I've dealt with personally are residual energies. So if it's a residual energy, then it tells me that whatever that person was in their life, they no longer exist in that space. It's just like leftover energy that's repeating itself, kind of like, you know, looping a movie over and over again, and you're just there experiencing it for whatever reason, you could see it. So a residual energy is just existing in that space that it once lived in. It's not actually a conscious spirit. It's not actually there. And then in turn, it can't see you. Now, if you were to ask the question, well, could a conscious spirit see you? And that one, I I wouldn't fully know. I'm going to say yes, because over the years, I mean, for the energy to know that you're in the room, and I don't think it's listening, that's, that's probably not the case, but I think there's a visual element to it. Now, I, I, the, the, one of the reasons I think this as well is if, uh, you know, um, anybody who's ever had the out-of-body experience that I so desperately crave but could never make myself do, it just randomly happened to me a couple of times. But on, on, on the, the most recent occasion when I was actually, you know, feeling into it, I could see things. I was able to open my, you know, spiritual eyes, so to speak, and I could see stuff. So I did have the ability to visualize things that were in front of me. And it could just be like, you know, maybe I'm like the predator and I'm just, I'm, I'm seeking not heat signatures, but energy signatures. And you could just be picking up on somebody's energy. I mean, you could say the eyes, you know, the eyes are physically like a camera. So if you don't have the eyes, how can you see? I don't know. I mean, everything is just made up of the same type of energy. So I I think they can see. So conscious spirits, yes. Residual energy, no. They can't see. Uh, Another question here is, why, as a child, you can see ghosts, but not after growing up? So this one I've beaten to death over the years. Maybe not with you guys, but definitely in my own life. The idea that children are more sensitive to spiritual energy is is not a strange statement to make. This is something that, you know, people are talking about. Even science is looking into it, not in the sense that children seeing spirits, but in the sense of reincarnation. So they can say that a, a child before the age of seven still has memories of their previous life. And I find this absolutely fascinating. So even some experiences where the kids, I guess they, in their previous life, they had a tragic death. So then they would go back to the village they came from. And this is in more spiritual societies that actually give that stuff credit. I know in like our more secular society, especially up here in Canada, maybe a little less in the United States, if a kid said, oh, I remember my other mommy from before and my other mommy lived here, you're immediately going to like, dismiss it and say, ah, oh, you have such an active imagination. Nobody follows up on it. But then you go to a more spiritual country, like, say, for example, India, where the ch- child talks that way and they believe in this stuff wholehearted, then they'll actually follow up on it and say, oh, the kid's talking about a village that's about two hours away. Let's just drive over there and see what happens. So then these, uh, there's books written on this. I forget the guy's name, but one guy actually did this, you know, took the kids to the village 
And it was amazing. They actually found the family of the guy who died, who ended up being reincarnated as this child. It's insane. And this is a scientific book, by the way. It's just insane. So they say the kids have more spiritually connected is because, in my opinion, as you grow up, you're told that none of this exists. In a secular society, the parents are like, oh, that imaginary friend you're talking about, that's not real. It's all just in your head. So eventually you see the the people around you, they're non-spiritual, they're very material-based and very scientific. You become that. Because as a child, you're trying to emulate the people around you, especially your parents, so you become that. So subconsciously, you start shutting this stuff down. You start turning those switches off. That doesn't happen to everybody, though, especially psychics. You got psychics out there who didn't turn this stuff off. Instead, they, they, they uh, cultivated it. They did exercises. They continued to up that focus to tap into those natural energetic instincts that, you know, conscious humanity has had for thousands of years. They they tap into something we've lost over the years, they tap back into it. So I do believe in the ability of psychics, and I also believe that we're all born with that initial ability to be more instinctual, to be more empathetic. So you, you are more energetically connected to the people around you and to your life and your situation. So you're going to pick up on more stuff. And if there's a restless, um, malevolent or mischievous energy that comes into your home, you're also going to pick up on that better. It's not that you're going to actually see anything, but you're going to feel it just like psychics do. It all depends, you know, what kind of energy is most prevalent in that child. So that's why I believe that as a child, you haven't been corrupted into thinking that, you know, there is no spiritual side. There is no, you know, ghosts. There is no, you know, energy that remains. And then as you get older, it slowly fades. And when you're a grown up, then you don't experience anything at all. The final question of the show before I head out this this week is why do some ghosts stay where they died and others where they're buried. Why do some ghosts stay where they died and others where they are buried? It's an interesting question. It got me thinking. First off, I don't believe that they end up where they're buried. Now, I I seek stories, you guys. I seek them out. And if you send them to me, I'm going to read them because I love them. And I want to know. I seek these stories out and I read them and, and they tell me things. I read between the lines. So if somebody sends me a story about a haunted cemetery, the first question I always ask is, well, what happened on those grounds before the cemetery was there? Or was there a tragedy in the cemetery itself that led to the energy that exists? Because if you've listened, you, you know that I'm an avid believer in the sense that cemeteries are not haunted. It's because when you inter the person into the ground, their energy is always or is already left. So they're very calm places. I mean, you might have some residual energy from the mourners, people who go there are very sad and they cry. I think the energy does remain from that, but I think because it's surrounded by nature, most cemeteries have lots of trees, lots of um, grass and plants. I think a lot of that uh, negative energy gets filtered out. Uh, if you guys know, if you ever go for a hike, you know, you feel so much calm when you're going into a forested area. This is because nature can filter energies away. So if there's really negative energies, it can get filtered away by living plants and living trees and whatnot. So um, nature always feels more calm than anywhere else. But then if you have cities, which are this abomination of concrete and, uh, you know, uh, dead wood and, and stone, it's not going to be the same. You know, there's nothing to really filter that out. Thankfully, if you go to a park, it feels better. But if, you, if you're inside of a house surrounded by a, a neighborhood, it doesn't feel as good. So cemeteries itself, my original point, they're just very low on ghostly, tragic energy, which is the common ghost story today. So I would say it's very rare. 
But if you have a story that disproves this, I would love to hear it. So then I'm going to go on the side is why do they stay where they died? It's because that's where they usually lived. So somebody dies inside of a hospital, which is very common today, not so much back in historic times. You know, a lot of stories of hospitals being haunted. We don't really talk about it for sensitivity reasons because it's all very current. But I say that that's, you know, there's energy there. And then maybe they return to where they lived because their energy is connected to that space. So then the idea where they died or where they lived most of their life, I think is definitely the more common. And by more common, I'm going to say well over 90% of the stories that I've heard are one of those two things, where they tragically died or where they lived most of their life. If they were in a house for like 20, 30 years, they're going to be connected to that house. Because that's the space where they had all their emotions in, all their tragedies, all their life experiences. That's what they're going to be most connected to. Like this invisible line that's just going to spring them back into that space after they die. However long they're going to haunt it, that's up for question as well. But yeah, so the question, the good, I mean, there's more I could talk about it. But to get back to the original answer here, why do some stay where they died while others where they're buried? I'm going to say most of the time... It's not where they're buried unless they were like, (laughs) this is dark. They were murdered in a house and buried in the basement. Maybe then they'll be there. I can see that happening. If they're murdered in their own house, even more, not somebody else's house. But when it comes to like cemeteries, graveyards, mausoleums, etc., I'm going to fathom the guests and say they are very rarely, if not ever, haunted. Anyway, that's the newly formatted show, everybody. I hope you enjoyed it. Again, the quick way to support me, just leave a review. Apple, Spotify, Google, I don't give a crap. However you listen, uh, it helps me out. I appreciate every single one of you, and I'll talk to you next week.